The Survival Podcast. As always, my man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 15th, 2013, and this is episode 1111 of the Survival Podcast. 1111 of the Survival Podcast. As I mentioned last week, I kind of like numbers that have interesting patterns and four ones. That's kind of cool. Anyway, to go along with the cool number, we have a cool show today. It's Monday, so you would think it's your feedback, but not this week. Had to preempt it because I have the opportunity to provide something to you guys today that I don't get to do very often, uh, bringing one of the world's foremost minds uh, of permaculture to you in the form of Jeff Lawton, uh, who's on now, I think, for his fourth appearance on TSP. It's an honor every time he's here, and uh, today we're talking about his new videos. We're talking about site selection. I didn't, there's no way I could have gotten all the questions that came in from you guys into him in about the hour that he had to spend with us, um, but I did get quite a few of them in, some of the more challenging. Ones. And what I'm going to do, a lot of you guys ask questions that I'm like, well, I know how we can figure, I know how to do that, or I know how to do that. So I'm going to take a lot of those questions and wrap them into maybe a show tomorrow for you guys and answer a lot of the questions I didn't get to ask Jeff uh, in a short Jack Spirico version. I asked him the ones that were the most challenging, but yet specific enough that they could be one question to a person. Because some of you guys ask like, Oh, I don't know, eight questions, and you don't get to ask eight questions because you take up the whole show. Anyway, before I uh, bring Jeff on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, for an hour to hour and a half a day, sometimes even longer. Sponsor of the day number one today, my what I call my reverse sponsor. That's the Free State Project. I call them a reverse sponsor because they don't pay to be here. I've given them the slot. Basically, I sponsor them. The Free State Project is inspired the concept of voting with your feet, working hard with the, the, the idea to make New Hampshire the freest state in the union by bringing 20,000 liberty-loving people to New Hampshire. They've been working on that for a long time now. They're about halfway to their goal with a number of people pledged to move. And uh, you might want to check them out, especially if you've been checking out walkingtofreedom.com, my own personal initiative to get people to at least leave the five to ten worst states in the country as far as oppression and uh, to come to a, a place that's more free. Uh, New Hampshire should be high on your list of places to check out. Check them out today at freestate.org. Next up today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious, the awesome, the cool, the super awesome Chef Keith Snow. Good personal friend of mine. He now lives in the wild west of Montana. He's got a lot of great stuff going on up there. The uh, local food movement in the area he moved to is huge. And he's doing what he's always done, teaching you how to cook seasonally and locally by focusing on making cooking a life skill and focusing on technique over recipe. But he's got some pretty good recipes, too. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Make sure you subscribe to his podcast and do check out his seasonings. Again, Montreal, uh, the Montreal steak, the chicken seasoning, and the low and slow barbecue. Those are my three favorites out of all of them, but they're all really gone good. Next up, I do want to remind you guys about Walking to Freedom. Um, I today decided that with some of the new uh, spam protocols I put in place there that we're not getting very many people signing up anymore that are like, you know, yippee, wing, dang, do, uh, or, you know, uh, it was the one that kept showing up was uh, whatever, Gucci bags and stuff like that in their names. And it looks like all legitimate signups uh, now. 
Um, I'm sure we'll still get some spammers fil filtering through. But now if you register for the form, you should immediately get an email for you to click on a link to activate. Those of you that use Yahoo, uh, Hotmail, AOL, it's really important whenever you're trying to sign up for any of these forms or anything like that, whether it's mine or anybody else's, immediately check your spam filter. They are the worst with labeling that stuff spam. And a lot of people say, I never got it. The machine sends it. It's just how it works, you know. So it went out, and sometimes ISPs block it. If anybody's registered and can't log in yet, let me know, and I'll see if your registration's active and help you out directly. My email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, do Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. First responders like paramedics, uh, EMTs, firefighters, and the like. Uh, I do offer you guys a special discount. Uh, to thank you for your service, just put service discount in the subject line and send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and include a sentence or two that tells me, you know, your background, what you used to do or what you're currently doing if you're still, uh, serving. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up and it's, uh, my great pleasure as always to say, uh, once again, hey, Jeff, man, welcome to the survival podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, you've got a lot going on. You, you came out with this video that I was sharing with the audience like at the end of last year, and it was like several months. We're like, where's the next video? And the next video you got, you came out with on this uh, property checklist was just awesome. Can you tell folks that maybe haven't seen the video yet uh, what they'll see when they when they watch that video? Well, we've been working uh, a little bit longer than we thought, so we get all our systems up so they function really well, but. Uh, We've been playing around with uh, some very interesting graphics, and um, I've been putting my design ideas into uh, video as um, um, what we've done is animation over the actual landscape. So I've gone through with my own style of graphics and my filmmaker together, and um, we've put together animations that show you the reality of change. And uh, we've gone out to real property, um, and uh, this is something we're going to do more and more of through different climates and different landscapes. So we cover lots and lots of, of, of landscapes and situations, but people can see real events time-lapsed, and almost immediately they see the landscape grow in front of them. And we've gone through and, and sort of given people an idea of how you you – how it looks through permaculture eyes I've tried to explain to people I can see the landscape as it can be developed so I've tried to put my my mind eye onto the moving picture in the camera and and it's working really well for people we're, we're getting comments where people are saying uh, you know now I can see what I learned in a in a in a permaculture course um You've stimulated me um, after 15 years. The permaculture books have been sitting on the library, and now they're on my desk, and I'm going into action. I, I realize what it is that I should have been sort of understanding in the landscape. So we're trying to get people to understand there, there's a whole basic checklist that, that, that makes a, a property easier to design with more potential and, and which properties are good to buy and if you've already bought one, how you adjust design within a property. So it's, it's really about giving more of a design insight to people so they, they get to understand 
the design science of permaculture and how it can actually apply and how it looks as it develops. So it's really giving you a quick time lapse, a snapshot into, into visuals very much. That's what's really impressed a lot of people, it looks like, the visual um, applications and, 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 and what it is, is is artistic rendering across Google Earth and across uh, high definition video um, footage, uh, but it's pretty real graphics, and, and you can see there like the potential of property, and and we take and we use comparisons on how people presently use property, and 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 how it's really not that thought out really compared to uh, natural systems. <laughs> You know, Jeff, with all of the, uh, the, like, just first of all, I just want to give you a compliment on the production value of the videos because when I heard you were doing these videos and you're going to put some free videos out like this, I figured it'd be you in front of a whiteboard and, and not that there's not value in that because the PDC uh, video series I bought with you and Bill, uh, I learned immense amounts from, but I didn't expect all of this visual flyover, all of the stuff that you've added to it. So kudos on just the production value alone, because these two videos to me could be DVDs that were being sold. I mean, they're that good. But the other side of it is this overlay, where you take the art, artist, artist rendering and overlay it into the actual landscape. I think that's very helpful for people, because I'm interested if you've had this experience before. People, because I've done the same with the whiteboard stuff. You explain a swale or you explain whatever it is. And then you go out to a place and somebody says, I watched your video. Look what I did. And you go, no, that's that's not. And you don't want to be hurtful or anything, but you're thinking that's just so far from what I would. They've got the swale rammed or something. It's all hard packed. Have you found that experience? And is that part of why you're taking this much more of a visual approach to it? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, and, and sometimes it can just be cut angles. And you've got to be so careful what you draw on a whiteboard cause like, and, a com- and what you put on a computer. You can put up unreality, things that can't possibly be done. Or the, or the angles are wrong on, on a pond wall, dam wall, or a swale wall, or a back cut on a, on a house site excavation. You've got to be really accurate. I once had an earth mover in the classroom years ago, and he picked me up on it. He said, you can't just casually put those angles up. They're not right. You've got to think about your angles and exactly what you're drawing, because your students might go out and do exactly that <laughs> with, with ill advice. So I've been cautious for a long time, but what I've wanted to do very much, and and I can tell the viewers this, this is the tip of the iceberg. We've only just started. I mean, what I've I've really enjoyed being able to take what I've wanted to do for a long time in visuals and instruction and take it through all the stages so that people can see the reality on the ground. And that takes a bit of budget to get out there and, that's what we've done. We've returned our surplus of, of, you know, any money we've made, we've put it back into the, the production of these um, films and videos. So we, want really, we wanted to put really high quality production out there. And in the video, I go from just a whiteboard to a whiteboard illustration with Google Earth projected on the whiteboard to actually the landscape in reality to the landscape with animations uh, photoshopped over the top and time-lapse animations. So the next stage is we go a little bit further again and we're out there 
with the Earth Movers. We've now got time-lapse photographs running 24-7 on property development. It's going to take a few years, but you're going to see time-lapses. We've got time-lapse cameras running as we speak. Um, and um, we've had time-lapses running with all our um, uh, Earthworks now, and that's going to carry on. And we've also got these little, it's almost like drone technology, but these little quadrocopters and, and mm. octocopters, and they've got little gyroscopes in them. So it's a bit of technology, but we fly them remotely over the properties. And, and, You're answering and questions from the audience before you get there, because one person asked that. How do, you, how do you do all those aerial views? Yeah, now what, what we've got is we've got a couple of pilots. I mean, they, they direct these things from the ground with, with, with a, a mask, a goggle on, and they're, they're seeing through the camera as they fly, but this is an expensive bit of equipment, so they, they're a bit nervous. You can see them sweating on the forehead there. <laughs> and, <laughs> I've got them flying down the inside of 10-year-old food forested swales, and they can't make a mistake. As we go, uh, the new uh, Food Forest 2 DVD, we've really, we've got a bit crazy with the quadrocopters and stuff, you know, and it's great. It's great to transfer the technology onto the flat screen because most of us have got to jump from this flat screen to reality. And that's a bit of a jump. You know, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, but we've got to give people that transition into real action. And um, what we want from these uh, visuals, these, these uh, DVDs, is we want people not just to watch them. We want people to do it. We want, you know, the, the information, the understanding, the knowledge, it, it's great. But if it doesn't actually turn it to action, it's not getting the result we want. That's the result we want. We want you to finish watching these and think, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I can do that. I, I feel more confident. I can actually do it. I understand it a bit more. And, that's that. As we get that result, we're playing it up more and more, and that's our mission. That's awesome, man. And I'll tell you that I think that's one of the biggest things that I try to convey to people is that, okay, so if I show you something I'm doing on my property, I have an, an end goal in mind. But what I'm trying to actually demonstrate to you is the technique and the design science behind it. And then Jeff's doing the same thing. And you look at the work of like a guy like Seb Holtz in a totally different climate than either one of us are in. And then all of these, these amazing people all over the place, Toby Hemingway, uh, Alan Savory, all of these guys. It's like So you can take all of this stuff and then you put it together. I think one of the things I've heard you say is it's like a wardrobe. All these techniques are like a wardrobe. And you know what dance you're going to, so you dress to the dance. So you, you, in other words, you take the, 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 the techniques and the science together and apply them onto your property so that you get the result you want, not the, the result Jeff wants or Jack wants. That's it. That's it. And, and all these great techniques, they all work fine. And, and you know, I, I have no prejudice at all about any of those fantastic systems. We've just got to put them together. As you say, they've got to fit the model that you're on, wherever you are, whichever landscape and climate and landscape profile that you're in, you've got to, as a designer, you've got to be able to put it together for the client's requirements or for the uh, property owner's requirements or the community's requirements. And, and that's an assessment process. And, and um, I, I'm really pleased that I've, you know, I've developed a presentation style that people find um, you know, is useful and transfers that knowledge for people into action, and um, and and it, it's uh, it's an honour to be able to do it really for um, for uh, the people of the world and 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 the environment itself. 
You know, one of the questions I got from uh, several different people about your latest video, there's one property that you really design. Like you show multiple dams in it, multiple swales, you're converting the complete thing over from gullies and, and this just horrible access point to a new design. And then you end up with this pattern. And in that pattern, you have all of these ponds, all these access points, this flowing water. Uh, you have all of these places that could be used for, let's say, paddock shift, shift grazing, these strips of forest between them. And what everybody's asked is, how big is that property and roughly how big are those the average paddock size in that pattern when you're done with it? Because I don't think people have the scale uh, in mind when they're seeing that. Yeah, we've... Um it, it, there are a number of, of, of properties being developed in those videos, actually. It's not just one, um, but there's, um, there's about four main properties that we're going through. Um, what the one they're uh, talking about, Jeff, is the one that has like a ridiculous number of dams in it when you're done. It's, it's the uh -huh. feature property where you, you map out all these paddocks in between it, and you end up with this huge pattern. That's the one they're asking about. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so um, there are... Uh, the paddocks end up no bigger than two acres. Okay. Um, they're, be they're between sort of um, just under one acre to two acres in size, so they fit the cell grazing pattern. Um, most of the dams are, 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 are ponds. They're, they're in the half a million liters to uh, one and a half million liters. So um, they're, not, they're not huge. They're small ponds, really. One or two are a little bit larger because the landscape fits it, but they're sort of an average small pond size. So in American um, <coughs> measurements, they're, they're averaging, say, 40 meters by 50 meters um, in size, something like that. If you think of a, a football pitch, they're no bigger than half a football pitch. Some of them are down to about a quarter of the size of, of a football football pitch, something like that. Um, and th they do go down a little bit smaller and do go up a little bit bigger. It's all about fitting it into the landscape itself. Um, and a half a million liters for those that are like, what's a half a million liters? It's about 130,000 gallons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and some go down to a large urban swimming pool okay. um, in size, and some of them go up to, say, an Olympic swimming pool or in size and a little bit bigger, not much. They're, they're, they're really very small. They're, they're little healing holes in the landscape. Um, and um, some of them make great, great fish stock dams too. So that, that comes into the equation. Um, but uh, the swales, uh, most of the swales there are, are big enough for a, small, for a quad bike to go down the bottom. You easily get okay. a quad in the bottom. And some of them, some of the larger ones, you get a four-wheel drive in there too. Uh, your average four-wheel drive, I mean. Um, it'd fit in the bottom. A small tractor would fit in the bottom. So even a 50 horsepower tractor would fit in the bottom driving carefully on the larger ones. Then I, I like, I tend to do that. I tend to keep a swale, uh, say a small, very small garden swale, a small swale on a very small acreage is a wheelbarrow swale. You can fit a wheelbarrow in conveniently and roll down the bottom of the trench. And then you get up to something where a quad bike could fit in there. Um, and then, and then a, a four-wheel drive and a tractor will fit in. And then you're getting into big swells when you get up above that. Now, um, they'll average a meter a minute um, in installation with the earth mover. 
Um, so it doesn't really matter because big swells are put in by big machines if you've got a good designer and small swells are obviously put in by small machines. If you can get a really accurate big machine to do a small swell, you'll do two or three or four or five meters a minute, yards a minute. So you can work that back on your hourly rate of uh, the, uh, the uh, excavator. But here um, you'd be looking at um, two, two and a half dollars a a meter to install the earthworks on a swale. They're pretty cheap. You've got a good operator. Um, but then they roll out with um, irrigation. Um, if you're going to irrigate your trees to start with just to get a quick jump start, you won't need to later. Um, but a lot of people do just to get away from um, problems of any dry period. So we've got uh, irrigation, we've got mulch, and then we've got tree planting. Um, what we're doing now is uh, just to give the listeners a little bit of a look into what we're actually working on right now um, we've got the time lapses now running with a time stamp so you've got a, a clock running away next to the machine uh, the, the the video of the machine running and the dollars ticking oh wow machine. and and then we've got the volume of material that's that he's moving running in a t in 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 um, time stamp as well so machine volume and dollars and then it's with the time. And then we've got the irrigation. And as they're laying it out, the length of the irrigation and the cost of the irrigation against the timestamp, the, the mulch going down, the volume of mulch and the, and the cost of the mulch going down in the timestamp. And then the trees going down and being planted and the number of trees being planted and what it's costing. And then right at the end, the, the total figure running on the video. Uh, that's what we're, we're trying to give people, look, come on, get confident. We can do this. It's, it's, you know, and then ideally now, as time goes on, <laughs> uh, the, the, the time lapse of the actual trees growing over a year and two years, we just want to keep these time, these, these time lapse uh, cameras running f full on. Um, and we're, hope, we're working with people on the technology to actually have cameras on uh, properties which can be controlled by... Um, um, anybody who's visiting the website. Now, so whoever's there website. first has control of the camera so two people can't fight with each other, but people can actually log in and pan and tilt and things like that, you're saying? That's what we're hoping to do. We're trying to That's work awesome. on that now. So we're remote I'm cameras, surveillance-type I was saying I'm actually thinking about doing that on my uh, the, 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 the property that I'm developing into these contour beds, which, by the way, you inspired. Um I, with some of my concerns with security, I don't want it all over the property. But I was thinking if I just put one there, people, I, you know, you can watch my garden grow. It's not going to really give you any critical uh, offsec information or anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we need we need to do this. You know, we need to actually be totally honest about what this is. What we're doing. This is what's happening. I mean, these these trees are growing. These cattle are, uh, are grazing through these systems. You'll see things moving fast. We're using this now for um, um, watering points for, for for cattle on properties, like so you can see the animals have got a drink. They're okay. The grass in the background's um, fine. Or no, we need to move the the animals. So people are using this type of technology to monitor their prop properties at a distance. So. I've had questions about, well, how long does it, you know, how long does it take to maintain these things? How much of my life will be taken up by it? Well, technology is a great assistance in this situation. We can, um, 
you can remotely do this from your mobile phone. Well, some of it. You can manage it from a distance and, and um, you can direct people to oh, go and move those animals over. Um, uh, can you go and like do some maintenance in those fruit trees? The cover crop needs cutting back or um, those trees need harvesting even. You know? <laughs> um, so let's, uh, I, the whole idea is that, you know, let's, let's get people to think smart about how we repair the landscape and put ourselves into productivity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that You bring up a really great uh, question because with my audience, there is a, a large number of people in, in this group who this is kind of their modus operandi. They live day-to-day in suburban America. They have their tenth of an acre to quarter of an acre to half of an acre property. And they will go out and they will find a 5, 10, 15-acre property remote, maybe a couple hours away. And, and their thought is, if anything ever really, really goes wrong, that's my retreat property. And a lot of those folks want to develop that property, but they don't want to develop it like a gardener would. They don't want to have to do things on a daily basis. What are your thoughts on developing a property that a person is maybe on one or two days a month on an average basis? That's exactly what I need to know as a consultant, and that's what all of us should realize when we consult on these these permaculture design systems they're, they're potentially extremely intense and complex or potentially they're very open to options in that you can lay down systems that keep your options open without being so intense so you've got a, a system that you can put down that is actually benefiting the landscape raising the potential of fertility and at any time you can jump in and increase intensity so you can build your baseline fertility build your baseline stability right, and have the whole system ready for a quick jump at any time without having to be there and be super intense so one of the questions i have to ask my clients is how much time do you really have you have to be absolutely honest with me how much time then how much money do you want to put into this how much experience do you have? Uh, you have to really tell me, uh, have you done this before? Haven't you done this before? What, and then how much are you prepared to put into educating yourself? Now, you can do most of that at a distance once we lay down the main frame. Main frames of properties are the foundation of how the system starts to stack up its own fertility, its own water, its rehydration, and its potential of moving forward at a rapid rate. Now, if you don't want to put the time in, but you want to set up the baseline, that's fine. We can get it ready for you. It's sitting there at any moment. It can take that optional move forward. And, and you can have all kinds of things. You can even have annual gardens sitting there in, in, a, <coughs> in, a, in a preliminary fertility building system. And at any moment, you can jump on it. So you might have to go twice a year and, and keep a, do a quick maintenance system where you switch into another cover crop. You sit, switch into another preparation biology. Your living systems are building the potential of your quick move. And as they get older, your quick move gets easier each time. So as the system's set up like that, you can make a very rapid move and, and that, that rapid move gets easier the longer you allow it to establish. So you're, you're building your security in those systems, but that's, that's why you need to know exactly what your client wants. And all the time in 
this new reality that we're facing, this new potential of all kinds of things sort of becoming a crisis quite quick, those properties are gaining value. Because everybody's starting to say, hey, we need some a valuable option if we have to make that quick move. So it, it's not dropping the real estate price, really, or value. It's increasing the value. That's becoming realized very quickly. Here in Australia, a lot of rural properties are starting to move very fast now. People are starting to take those options. Exactly what you're talking about. People are buying that. Hey, I need the option to move out of this if uh, things go a little bit pear-shaped. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It, it brings me to mind another question. I, I've got some stuff from the audience I want to ask, but this is a question I was asked last August. I did a, a guest lecture at a PDC up in Vermont that Ben Falk did at Home System, uh, Whole Systems Designs. And one of the questions I got, it was not even during the lecture, it was more sitting around the campfire talking type thing. And I had a whole group of, of students come to me and they said, "If because if these, these folks had gotten together and bought a property together and they were very cash-strapped. And they said, we've got this property, it's it's 30 acres, and we are very cash-strapped, and none of us are going to be living anywhere near the place anytime soon. What is the first thing you would focus on? And I'll tell you what I said, and I'd like to hear you tell me either good job or you totally screwed it up. <laughs> My thought was I would focus on the very first thing I'd focus on is what's life for the entire system, which is water. And I'd bring in equipment, and I'd swale and put dams in. And, and if that was all you had money to do, that's what I would do with a property that's going to sit and wait. Yeah, yeah. You're going to – water access structures are nearly always a, a sort of mantra of approach. Prior to anything else, you've got to look at the, the full potential of water and then access. And those and the water patterns – there might be a few options, but the water patterns are quite constant because water behaves in a very, very regular way. So uh, the potential of where the water can um, – not only uh, store water, but rehydrate, soak with swales and uh, deep rip and, and soil condition in between swales. And, and the general landscape needs to receive and soak water better. So, yeah, earthworks and then put in a recovery planning that, that then, you know, so you've got living systems taken up. You've got plants and and and. and and easy to maintain trees, trees that are, don't need any maintenance, that just give you a real quick recovery, what we call pioneer trees. And then set up your access so that you've got the main frame access so you can get in there and, and get to the property. When the guys get there, they've got a, an access track or access driveways that are, once they're established, they're very stable and they themselves can complement the water. And then you can, then when you look at the water and access patterns, you can see Ah, oh, here's the options. There's the obvious options for where I put structures, buildings, and um, and and they'd be very basic buildings. I I've done a lot of property development with friends of mine where that's what we go and do. We go and we just put in the mainframe water system, the mainframe access system, and the mainframe infrastructure of buildings. So it might just be. Here's, here's a, uh, a building where we can come and spend a few days, any of us that own the property. Here's the main access track in, and it's a multifunctional access track. It catches water. It's got trees that create a windbreak or it's a firebreak. It does a few things at once. The water's got gravity coming downhill, and the property's rehydrating itself and reforesting, and, and, it, and it's building valuable fertility. And we've got a very, very basic building that we can – 
we ourselves can come and help build the property's potential. And, and that sort of development is, is valuable. People see that as a great starting point instead of a, a, a property that's just a, a blank slate, and they've got to figure out where the mainframe goes. So I think laying down mainframe design is a valuable way of helping people get a jump start on a property. And that's nearly always, there's not so many options for mainframe. You've only got a few, but the next development, that's a pleasure. It, it's, it's like maybe there's nine or ten variations on the way it then evolves. And then the next evolution is 20 or 30 or 50 options. And I don't think you need to take those options off people. That's part of what they enjoy. But if they've got the main, if they make a mistake in the mainframe, um, it's hard work from then on. You, 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 you've yeah. got, to get, you, got to get that right. Because there's certain – I actually say there's very few constants in nature. You know, water freezes at 32 degrees. Water moves at right angle to contour. This, where the sun rises and sets every day throughout the year, based on your latitude, is a constant. Uh, the primary wind direction in your particular property you're designing is a constant. And, and those constants in nature are so few – that that mainframe has to be built with those in a hundred percent consideration because there's so many other things that are variable, but those very few things are constant. That's right, and and if you get those, if you get those right and fully considered, then your options become a lot a lot more diverse, and so you can change it one way or another, and 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 then it becomes a real pleasure to realize you you're, you're in for a very interesting lifestyle, and and it's kind of an interesting evolution and adventure then that things um, present themselves to you and you, you realize, wow, I, I didn't really know that was going to happen, but that's a good thing. Um, I've got a free yield. I've got a free event here. I've got a free energy. And um, I didn't even see it coming. So it becomes like there's a lot of things that appear like gifts, but they're just um, detailed observations that you didn't realize were going to present themselves in front of you as you as you go. But it's all about getting that mainframe right. And so we can be we can have a lot of preparedness um, if we understand these systems. Very cool. So let me start throwing some questions at you from the audience here in regards to your videos. And I'm trying to give priority to the ones that, that focus on the latest video on the ch property checklist. Uh, here's the question, and I always make my people that get their questions answered make the question very succinct in one sentence and then give details following. So that's how they'll come to you. Would you consider a parcel of land that's one that's entirely in the 100-year floodplain? Details. I have a chance to buy 10 acres that have fabulous soil, beautiful stream, bottom area, scattered trees with full southern exposure. I'm in the northern hemisphere. Price where I can buy it with cash. Locals say the land has been underwater a day or so a year during heavy rains. The land does not have any signs of erosion due to neighboring woods. If I build my house and buildings up on stilts, the f food forest orchard I plant would be the only thing that gets wet. Uh, would you even consider this? Well, that's, a, that's an unusual one. Um, if the regulations locally allow you to do earthworks in that bottom land, um, and um, it depends on the depth of that 100-year flood, there's a very interesting thing that you can do in those bottom lands if you're allowed to do it, and, and you will have to have some understanding or a good consultant come in. Um, what you can do is every time you, you dig a hole for a, for a pond or any kind of excavation, you're going to end up with surplus material. 
So every time you dig down, and you might even hit water in the dry times if you dig down if you're in the bottom land, so you might immediately get, you know, uh, water holding, you'll, you'll, um, you'll go up with a mound. So mm. every, every excavation you go down, you're going to end up with an up scenario with it. And that mound could easily get you up out of that 100-year flood. So your house might be uh, above the flood after that. Now, if those shapes, those shapes can't be random. They have to be quite harmonic. They have to harmonize with the flood flow. Now, if they're curving away from the flood flow, they'll, they'll direct the, the, the energy of the water around the bank smoothly and direct it away. If they concentrate it, the flood itself will dig holes. If they hook the, in, in, the, in a harmonic way, if they hook slightly against the, the flow, they'll become a deposition bank of the, of the flow of the flood itself. Now, so they'll flow as the flood progresses if you do it right. If you do it right and you plan it with the right trees that can handle those conditions or clumping bamboos or whatever, what, what you'll get is is thousands of tons, possibly hundreds of tons, thousands of tons of mulch on the upside and, and river silt on the downside. So you'll literally build an organic, rich silt bank. Now, that has been done before in history many times. So, the, the so you're creating a delta. You're creating a delta in a temporary river. You, you are creating your own personal delta. It becomes wow. a, depos- a deposition system. I love that kind of stuff because it's it's courageous design and and you can research it now if the if if they legally let you do it and you're brave enough for that adventure i'd go for it but take get some real good advice and um i i I, I, i'd like to put the time-lapse camera on it (laughs) yeah i I, i'll tell you everything you said was wonderful what what, the the the, the technical term you're looking for here in 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 the, the states is is it zoned a wetland? If it's zoned a wetland, everything Jeff Jeff just said is like out. If it's not zoned a wetland, that is an amazing solution, and it's it's great because it, it takes it like I I think I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, well, you could turn it into a great place to shoot ducks in the fall, and 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 now I have a totally different way of viewing it. As soon as you started talking about curve it a little bit in, and it starts to accumulate, I'm like. It's it's a delta in a temporary river, and when you look at the fertility of river deltas, it's huge. So again, the problem's the solution. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the bigger the problem, the bigger the solution on on nearly everything. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, here's the next one. Where can I find a resource that tells me suitable plants, specifically trees, shrubs, and plants, for my hardiness zone? It's so on the edge of 6A, 6B, which I'll explain in a second because I know that means probably nothing to you. Uh, it's uh, starting my food forest specifically in regards to nitrogen fixers. So a 6A, 6B cold hardiness zone, Jeff, is northern but not Arctic. It's Pennsylvania. It's New York. It's Massachusetts. It's a good three, four months where it's really cold, snow, sleet, that kind of crap, and temperate the rest of the year. And what they're saying is that you see all these nitrogen fixers in your videos in the tropics, and you're like, yeah, that'll die, that'll die, that'll die, that'll die. So what can we use in a more temperate climate as a perennial nitrogen fixer? Yeah, um, you've got slightly less. Um, We have such leachable soils in the subtropics to tropics with our very heavy summer rain. Um, So um, a lot of the nitrogen fixers are there to keep that 
that those cycles going so that there's more and more leaf production with their with their fertility. But you have you have some um, very cl- classic um, temperate climate legumes. There's uh, things like Albizia julibriescens, which in the south is a uh, considered a bit of a weed in in North America, but it's great um, in the cooler climates. It takes quite a cold um, temperature close to minus 10 um, sort of temperatures. Um, but you have people like Eric to- Tosmeyer has written a lot on this and um, has published on our website, uh, permaculturenews.org um, is our website. You have a lot of resources there uh, because we, we, we encourage lots of people to contribute to the website and add that sort of information. Um, you could easily Google search that and get a lot of trees as well. So you can you can go for the, the cold climate legume trees as a Google search. But there are people who specifically write on these subjects out of North America. And Dave Jackie's book Forest Gardening, or is it, it's a it's a, a double two books together, um, uh, documents a lot of the trees that you can use. Then you have non-legume nitrogen fixers. Um, Older is one um, that grows in that climate. So you see older as part of the regen in areas where uh, landscape is damaged and it's coming back to forest. That's not a legume, but it does fix nitrogen. So there are some non-legume nitrogen fixers. Um, and, um, and then you, even, uh, you have the Eliagnus genus, which is also a non-nitrogen uh, non-legume uh, nitrogen fixer. Those are your um, autumn olive, your gumi, those, those, those particular, and they're actually quite useful as food sources as well. Yeah, yeah. And then you have little bushes like Siberian pea tree. And, and as people concentrate on that, there, there are, there are a lot of lists being built. And, and a lot of people are now putting them up on our website because it's kind of, it, it, it's a research institute website where people are publishing their research papers, really, in, an, in a more informal way than they have to have a peer review. You, the public, are the peer review on the comments, really. So if you look through uh, on, on what's been written there, it's more and more all the time. Um, remember that, you know, in those cold climates, you get a ground cover in the winter, which is really the freeze, and you get the snow. And you get, uh, you know, you get all your woody material rotting down in the non-growing period of the year and a big fungal relationship going on uh, with the, 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 the cold climates rotting all your woods down to grow the spring flush. Um, so you don't really need quite so much diversity as the warmer climates, the, especially the tropics, and, and you get enormous amounts of herbal flush. So there's a lot of nitrogen fix in the herbs. And, and you've still got the tree cycles. Of course, all of these cycles go right across the world. But there's an emphasis in one direction or another. And as you go into those cooler climates um, and where you get light snows to deep snows, you'll get these much, much larger flux, fluxes of, of, of herbaceous um, growth in the summer that give you these massive charges of nitrogen seasonally and the woods are rot- rotted uh, the woody material, that's why the hugel beds work so well in those cold climates because the wood mm-hmm. is rotting in that damp time of year and, um, and not when the growing season's on, the growth is really taken up with the herbal flush and, and the deciduous tree leaves come in, in full, full hit in midsummer. so um, don't worry about having quite so many woody legumes 
but just a few real good anchors and really boost up the lower layer with the herbal flush. Because you're you're so concentrated on it in the tropics and subtropics because it leaches so fast. So in a northern yeah. climate, the problem's a solution. There's less trees, but we don't need as many of them. Yeah, well, a lot of people say, oh, you're lucky you've got these warm climates, but we're going to tell you definitely that the easiest climate to damage is the arid, the dry lands, and it can easy to keep damaged. And they're the smallest clearings of crop country in the food forest. You look at the traditional food forest, very, the smallest clearings for stability and, and continuous productivity uh, are the clearings in the arid land food forest then the tropics because although it's hot and everything keeps growing the sun is so vertical and the growth rate is so extreme all the all the life most of the life is above the soil the soils are shallow where in the deserts nothing breaks down very easily without water so there's a lot of residual fertility in dry lands where there's not a lot of residual fertility in the, in, the, in the humid tropics. Then you get to those temperate climates where you get a wonderful refertilization every year with the winter. You get a dormancy period when that's when your decomposition of your woody materials happen. And you get a, a fresh start every year after a sterile winter. And your days get so long in those temperate climates and the sun is so beautiful and gentle and shallow you get a shallow light so not only do you get long days but you get useful sun over that whole long day so that's why you get such huge vegetables growing in the in the in the temperate climates that's why all the all the giant vegetable competitions are won by people in alaska <laughs> yeah <Isn't> absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. And one thing I'll say, and I don't know that this will work as far north as the Pennsylvania area, which where the question came from was, but um, there's two trees that are used a lot in the tropics, Lucena and Moringa, that I have found can be grown as annuals, at least in the North Texas, Southern Arkansas area. Uh, and you'll get a, a, a big giant, call it a big giant woody herb that's uh, eight feet tall every year. And you can chop and drop it, and it will produce seed in that first season, which can be propagated again and again. And since we want that nitrogen fixer eventually to be a very minor part of the whole production system, it, it can kind of fit that role. Now, again, I, I haven't played with this further north than uh, the Little Rock area, but I've been able to get both of those species of trees to grow in the southern latitudes of the U.S. anyway to the point where they're producing seed. And at that point... They're really into their nitrogen fixing cycle, and it's kind of like growing an annual tree, if that makes any sense. Hold on a second. You're teaching me something here. What was that? Awesome. That is the greatest thing ever right there. I've taught Jeff Lawton something. (laughs) (laughs) You you changed the, the... The time stacking of, of, a, of, of a woody perennial into an annual function for the benefit of pioneering. That's, that's, that, that's a great thing to do. What a great – and you've got seed in the process, so it's a sustainable process while you're establishing the system into permanence. Wow. Correct. And, and to do that, it, you have to take a greenhouse and start your seed in, like, January. For, so it's the dead middle of our winter, but it works. And by the time you get into fall, where the frost comes in and kills the tree, you've got a seed harvest. You've got a green harvest that you can feed to your animals, because Lucena and Moringa both are consumed by a lot of herbivores with relish. And then you've got a woody layer that you just drop to the soil and, and chop and drop. Wow. There you go, folks. I mean, and, and Lucina is, is 38% green leaf protein, one of the best nitrogen fixes there is, one of the best 
nitrogen-rich mulches and one of the best forages in the world, and you put it into a, a, a time stack system where um, the use of the greenhouse can be, go on to other functions once you've got a stable system. So even your, 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 your glass house that, that grows them originally goes on to other purposes and you know you can carry on using it that's a that's a great little adaption you should you should write an article on that one jack <laughs> well thanks man here's the next question from the audience um guys found a perfect piece of land but he's scared to buy it because it used to be a farm and it was farming gmo crops so it's been uh, hit with herbicides repeatedly and he wants to know would you even mess with that because now you've got this residual herbicide laying in the subsoil um, if that was your your better option on on the type of property you want, in other words, in the right climates, in the right price, it's the right sort of landscape profiles, I wouldn't have any problem at all. I'd just move straight in with fast carbon pathways, in other words, real fast um, pioneer trees, and I'd just chop and drop them down after I'd done my soil conditioning and earthworks, and we'd get out of that herbicide very, very fast because it, it carbon is your sponge, and as you as you start to stack carbon and speed up its functions, you're speeding up the function of nature, locking up any of those toxins into long carbon, long chain molecules, which are um, which make the the toxin inert. It doesn't necessarily go away. There's no away on this planet. What you're doing is you're taking those strangely assembled elements. That's all they are, and you're putting them back into an inert formation with carbon. Carbon is one of those unusual elements that, and one of the most unusual elements, I mean diamonds are, are based in carbon, life's based in carbon. Diamonds are the hardest substance in the, in the known universe, so it's an unusual element. And, and through the life cycles, carbon, and that's really compost and decomposition, speeding up decomposition, and, and to do that on mass, you need these fast pioneering species, and that's what we use anyway. So those, those carbon cycles start to lock it up, and, and, and those toxins get attached. If they're not leached away a bit, they'll, they'll get locked up with the carbon molecule, and they become a long-chain molecule that's more complex, and there's a lock-up, and they become inert. By the time you're up and away, one or two, three years later, um, I tell people, look at Chernobyl. Look mm. at what happened in Chernobyl in Russia. And, and you can tell the health of an ecosystem if top predator is alive. There are YouTube videos out there, the wolves of Chernobyl. In, in, in the town of Chernobyl, trees are growing through the street. They're growing through buildings. And they've got, they've got packs of wolves now back in town where it's deserted. Top predators arrive back and the system's cleaning itself with carbon pathways. It's a, it's a really interesting example. Nobody did that. We didn't rev that up. We can. We just got out of the that. way because we had to. Yeah, <laughs> if you, you can use that as an example and rev up that system. You can, you can supercharge that system into fast carbon pathways that clean up all those you know, residual toxins, and, and on we go. And GMO, well, GMO will be long gone by then. Nature quickly overpowers GMO if we get out of the way because it, it, it's, it's, it's human selection, not natural selection. Well, here, I'm going to try to blow you away again then with, with maybe I could teach you something else. I don't know. We'll try it. Okay, so what you just described is, is nature accomplishing chelation. They're binding up the toxic molecule. 
right? So that it can't actually do what it's supposed to do. The herbicide uses chelation to bind up the nutrients to deprive the plant that it's killing of the nutrient that it needs. This is why it's so bad, because we end up with a corn or a soy product that's been chelated out, but yet genetically modified to survive, and then we're eating a nutrient-deficient plant. That's part of the problem with GMOs in our diet. So what you just described to me is the problem is the solution. So the, the problem with GMOs is we're using a chelation method to create an environment where everything except the modified plant can't take the nutrient up, and then nature comes in and chelates the toxin so that the, the, the pioneering plant doesn't take it up and die. That's it. That's what happens, and they're adapted to do it. They're, they're, they're specialists at that function. Awesome. And, and, awesome. and really, that's what you're choosing. You're choosing um, the hard-working immigrants of the natural system. They come in like hard-working in, immigrants and do jobs often that, that the, we've taken the system beyond what endemic plants can handle. We've taken it backwards. But immigrant plants often can come in and do the, the initial hard work to rebuild society, and then they just become... Um, an, an element within the system that is ready to do that hard work if it ever happens again. I completely agree. I think that's a great way to put it. Nobody knows how to put in countertops anymore, so the immigrants do it. And that's exactly what we're talking about, mainframe there. Next question. Um, could you publish a list in the future with your efforts of the most common type 1 errors? Yeah, I, I, I probably could. Uh, I'd probably prefer to make a DVD that includes it. <laughs> I'm, not so good. <laughs> I'm not such a quick writer, and, and I'm definitely more uh, a talker than a writer. Um, and um, on, on either end of that, um, type 1 errors would be um, a nice complement. Maybe it's chapters here, a chapter on type 1 errors and a chapter on positive indicators when you look at like indications that you're getting it right is the opposite end of um, um, type 1 errors. So your type 1 error indicator, you got it wrong. That's what that really is, and it's a, a main main problem or a main um, error that you see very quickly and indicates the problem. But the other end is, like, how do I know I'm doing the right thing? And, and I'd like uh, to make that list. Something um, along that vein I, I've got some of my interns working on is the... Uh, um, how do we make all the children of the world feel more like global citizens that can act locally anywhere? And that's how I feel our uh, PDC students, our uh, permaculture design certificate students feel like, now I feel global and I could actually feel with this system I could act anywhere local and, and look after myself and, and the community I live in. So as we grow up, I think we need a book that, that the 10 main things every tiny little child should know as they learn to, 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 even when they learn to talk, like little toddlers, what are the ten main things you can say are absolutely constant in the, in the, in the world around us for every, every child to know? And what is the hundred things that each young school child should know? And what are the thousand things every teenager should know that you could say, this is guaranteed, this works in every culture, every landscape, every language. You say, this makes you feel more confident about you know, what, like you said before, water moves at right angle to contour. That's a constant. Evap 
Evaporation cools, condensation warms. That's a constant. The sun angles, the mid, midday, midsummer's uh, sun angle, the midday, midwinter's sun angle. Uh, you know, there's, there's this wonderful list that, that, that when you look outside, you think, oh, look, I learned that. Like my, you know, that was my part of my education as I grew up. So I feel like I feel confident out there. I, I, I know these things so I, I can I can observe and interact off those understandings. And I'd love to get that book written. Um, like I say, I'm and not a writer. the audience, because we'll get some members of the audience that will hear Think Global and, and go off the deep end. When you say Think Global, you're not talking about a, a, a government paradigm. You're talking about a natural paradigm that there's fixed constants throughout the globe that we as human beings, since we're, we're inhabitants of it, should understand, know intrinsically, so that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, we're capable of creating abundance wherever we're at. That's what you're saying there, right? Yeah, it's, it's almost like a mainframe thinking um, about the global environment. So we, we can now say, oh, if I start at those points, I can diversify into the specific location I'm in, climate, landscape profiles, and culture. I can adjust, and I can also analyze backwards in history why people are the way they are. Absolutely, because you can see what they didn't do and how it created the crisis that they're in, and not only can you see how they got to that crisis, but the solution to uh, abating it and restoring abundance to where they're at. That's right. Okay, next question. I promise this is not me asking this question in spite of our conversation before we started the interview. What is the best way to deal with large underground rock when planting earthworks? We are looking at an area with large limestone formations, some only a few feet under the surface. The limestone is also very porous. Thanks, John. It's really not me, Jeff. It's not my property. It's somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, had to, I've had to deal with this in the last few years uh, near Canberra in Australia and um, on large property. L- let me tell you one little trick about uh, rock in, um, in, in the soil. If, you, if you're earthworking and you come across uh, the top of a rock and you don't know whether it's Mother Earth and the, and the, and the main reef itself or just a large rock, uh, stand next to it. Stand next to it on the soil itself, and get the earth mover to give it a good bash with a bucket. Especially, if we've got a big machine. If the earth that you're standing on shimmies and shakes a little bit, or gets a bit of a quiver in it, that rock is just a big boulder of some sort, and it's moved a fraction when the earth mover hit it. If if the ground doesn't move at all, if you don't get any shake, even when you you bash it. A few times you have hit Mother Earth, you've hit the main reef, and it's a bit more of a problem. If it's a big rock, you probably can actually dig around it and roll it out the way or push it to one side and have it as a landscape feature that will be like a big roof that catches water, and and you can design around that issue. Um, Limestone is not the hardest of rocks, but it can be quite hard. And if you're going to have to and go through limestone and, and change its profiles or open it up a bit, fracture it a bit, you're going to need a big machine. The bigger machine, the better. The bigger machine that you can get on the site with a ripper, um, that's a bulldozer usually with rippers on the back. And um, here we can save yourself a lot of money getting the biggest machine possible because the amount of work they can do per hour to dollar ratio is much higher. Uh, you okay. just got to pull up. You've got to pull up if they're too big for the property because it can get a bit too untidy. 
So as you rip through, you can rip those top layers and fracture it and push it slightly downhill, include it in a swell mound, include it as rock features. Now, there's nothing wrong with rock. Rock can be really, really creative and positive within a design. You just another, constant, another constant nature. This one I, I, I should have known, but I learned from you. Rock creates 100% runoff. Yeah, so a lot of places you can create what's uh, uh, a design system called a limonia, which is where we, we capture hard surface runoff and infiltrate it into the soil as rehydration. So we make little ephemeral ponds. They're like little, little earth banks that trap the runoff from hard surface and soak it in. It becomes a soaked-in patch. So we can, in drylands, we can actually grow forest inside those temporary ponds because you can't easily drown trees in dry lands um, a little bit of water around them for a day or two is just a great advantage for many weeks afterwards so you can do all kinds of things with rock rock is also a great thermal mass and 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 captures heat and stores it for longer because of its density and that means you can make microclimates and increase the heat storage effect within a little area. You can, you can position it, you can shape it, you can put it into harmonic shapes. First off, you've got to see whether the local earth movers think they can shatter a few layers off to give you those features and functions. And um, as we were talking earlier, Jack, that limestone usually comes from old ocean beds, and it's more like a kind of formed caliche, which is a, a substance that forms at the lower layers of coral reefs on coral islands and where coral islands have been totally deforested and often goats have taken part in that when they remove the goats or they let the forest come back that process is speeded up by digging pits into the calis which is like limestones like soft concrete and filling those with mulch and the humic acid formed as the mulch decomposes starts to break down the limestone tree roots get in they form natural fractures that open up the limestone and when their life cycle is complete or if you speed it up by chop and dropping those as legume fast growing pioneering legume trees that like those initial conditions you're creating compost corridors in the soil for higher more refined species to follow through and they're the product species they're the ones you want so you know, there's ways with our, our mechanical devices today and our wonderful technology to put them into, into beneficial use to actually improve the environment and move it towards sustainability. And that's why it's quite okay to use technology to speed up our road towards permanence and abundance. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's a great use of that embodied energy because it extends over an extremely long time. In fact, permanence is as long as you can be. So that little bit of energy and pollution to install systems that are going to end up permanent is not a problem at all. Well, and every time you talk, I end up with the DH, smack your head, duh, uh, effect. Because when you were talking about that earlier with the limestone and the humic acid, I thought, well, that's why we have these things called sinkholes uh, that happen in coastal areas of Texas and Florida. We have a limestone substrate. We end up with swamps. Swamps produce humic acid. Humic acid erodes the limestone layer. And next thing you know, a house disappears under the ground. That's exactly what's happening. So, once again, nature's the teacher. Yep, yep. And we can use that system. That's the system to, uh, to work with because that, that gives you the fastest backup assistance. There's no stronger partner <laughs> to work yeah. with. Instead of swimming upstream against a strong current, you just suddenly turn downstream and float. 
if you or swim if you want to go quicker. Absolutely. Next question is a guy says, um, do you, "What are your thoughts on phytoremediation or removing con- contaminants from soil?" His house is in an area contaminated mainly with nickel and cobalt ugh, uh, from a nickel refinery. He's been looking at phytoremediation to help clean the soil. From what he's read, sunflowers are a powerhouse of removing heavy metals from topsoil, but finding data of soil samples has been impossible. Uh, knowing that plants can pull these contaminants up has made me leery of starting a garden on my property because I don't want to eat nickel and you know cobalt. Yeah. Okay. So all of your metals, um, the heavy metals, they're all um, they're not water soluble until you get to 4.5. That's pretty acid because seven is neutral and six is ten times more acid and five is a hundred times more acid it's a it's a logarithmic scale the ph scale so four is a thousand times more acid than 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 neutral so one thing check the ph straight away it's the same with alkalinity when it's going alkaline it's going 10 times more alkaline when it moves from seven to eight and a hundred times when it goes from eight to nine so a pair of ten so just watch that now your your plants don't want to eat nickel and cobalt right but they have to drink it if you get plumes of pH, if you get any pH that goes into those high alkalinity or high acidity. Now, it's not that they're going to be there all the time, but you might have pollution downwind, particularly fossil fuel pollution that's coming in, and you get in plumes of rain that will dip you into those acidic, acidic conditions. Mulch and organic matter. Organic matter in the form of compost and mulch, deep mulch, Adding to the soil actually takes you away from the acidity or the alkalinity to very close to neutral. And then you haven't got that problem. Those, those elements are there, but the plants aren't going to take them up because you've buffered any chance of pH adjustment or pH being affected by plumes of acid rain or anything like that. Now, out on the ground, it's the same problem as we said before. It's a matter of getting really fast-moving plants out there that build carbon. Now, you want herbaceous and woody material. Non-woody material like sunflowers, great, right? But don't go for just one plant. Go for a whole mixture. Go for a regime of pioneers. This is how we pioneer ground anyway. Stack them up really fast and get them down on the ground. And and bioremediation means bringing up the microorganisms, and there's 50 million genus of bacteria down there that are doing all kinds of things we don't know much about. There's little nematodes and protozoas and flagellates. But there's also these fungi, and fungi work on wood, so your woody mulch. So Paul Stamets is a great uh, fungi expert in permaculture and has a lot of information on this. So you start stacking woody mulch materials in there. You know, um, th- this is great knowledge for people to know about bringing in the fungi as well. So Paul Stamets actually sells fungi spores to do exactly this. This is another little element in the wardrobe of permaculture that we totally approve of and include. <coughs> bring in the fast-growing woody trees, bring in those herbaceous mulches, stack it down, stack it down, stack it down, keep that pH constant. And get your initial gardens up off the ground. You might even bring in a bit of extra soil, but compost like mad, mulch like mad, get those deep mulches going, and I think you'll be fine. We've done this many, many times with all kinds of situations that people are really dubious of. But 
just keep things in balance. Balance and moderation, stacking carbon into your system, and, and, and off you go. What about the role of animals in that? I had a, a similar question recently where somebody had uh, kind of, I call it being suckered by the man, where the, the, the county came in and said, hey, we'll give you free Amelia Penethate or whatever, how, how, however the heck you say it, which is a persistent herbicide um, uh, to, to, to manage your, your, your lawn, basically. So they sprayed their lawn with this crap, and, and now four years later, they're just starting to see a few broadleaf leaves return, and uh, broadleaf weeds return. And they're, they're saying, you know, I, I want to paddock my chickens through here, but I'm afraid to have them, you know, go through here. And I'm like, I don't feel good about it for the chickens, but overall, put them through there. Start pulsing them through, because as they expose this, this stuff to UV light, as they scratch, as they manure, as they, as they gr- create their own cycle, they're going to degrade the pathogen. Yeah, I mean, the indicator that broadleaf weeds are coming back is a good sign, and um, what the thing with lawns is when you keep mowing them, you keep reducing the root penetration depth of the grass, and you get a little hard pan underneath of of uh, uh, finer materials in the clays and what you get is things like dandelions that have great big tap roots that go down and mm-hmm. penetrate it because you're creating a germination condition for plants that function as decompactors. I mean, what we're always doing is we're, we're treating the symptom instead of treating the cause and it's sort of like saying, you know, the reason you've got a headache is your body's got a deficiency of aspirin. I mean, that's <laughs> the wrong way... <laughs> You're making me laugh because I've said that about 400 times. That, that, that's so awesome to hear you say that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the, the, you know, the herbs are the same. You know, the weeds that we've got, there are little problems, are indicators that we've got a cause for that, creating that problem. So, you know, you, you, your landscape hasn't got weeds because it's got a deficiency of herbicide. Um, but that's a very, you know, good thing to, you know, say if you're going to sell herbicide. But if you want to change it around, chickens would be a great way to get in there and, and move a bit of element around. Um, I suppose you could test the eggs if you really wanted to. Um, I expect you're breathing more toxin than they're gaining there, um, just generally what's around us in the atmosphere. Um, so what you would do is you, you'd bring in um, some way of decompacting that soil, spike that soil, try and diversify what's growing in the grass so that you've got more seed for your chickens, and, and so they get more involved. Um, I, I track the chickens very intensely over ground and then chip it up a bit and put in a cover crop and then move it into tree systems or cover crop to then move into crop systems um, and get out of that cycle. Um, so it depends whether you want your chickens to maintain a lawn for you or you want to move it into a, a permanent tree system, or you want to move it into a um, a cropping system. Otherwise, you're you're going to graze the lawn with something else, um, or you're going to mow the lawn and just get the chickens on there every now and again. But uh, again, I, I don't think it's a major problem if you're already seeing broadleaf weeds coming back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and chickens will take out a lot of weed cycles because they'll stop seeds. You know, they'll, they'll pull out a lot of seeds and they'll, they'll pull out weed seeds and eat them and they'll take out a lot of bugs and, and, and larvae processes. So uh, um, not too much of a problem, I wouldn't think. It just depends. And, and, and uh, unfortunately, the, the, the first, um, the beginning of most answers um, to permaculture questions is it depends. Correct. <laughs> it, 
it depends what you want that lawn to be, whether you want it to stay a lawn or you want it going forward into crops. Or you I mean, want it going this guy's yeah. big concern was he wanted to get rid of the problem created because he was dumb enough to put herbicide on there in the first place. I mean, I, I think he still wanted a lawn, but he was fine if there were weeds in the lawn. I mean, you know, I mean, I look at my, what I call my lawn. My lawn is full of, you know, broadleaf plantain. Uh, it, it, there's, there's dandelion. There's a, a clover. There's all of these things people call weeds, and I think it's beautiful. And I think that's where he's trying to get to. It's an open green space, multi, uh, polycultured, you know, mix of grass and broadleaf and, 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 and nitrogen fixers like clover. Yeah, well, like you've got plantain is a great medicinal herb. Dandelion, you can actually eat it. You can even make a substitute coffee out of the root. I mean, these things, that some of these herbs that we worry about are actually quite useful. So if he spikes his lawn um, and, and, and decompacts it a little bit and, and starts to include some other, other useful plants that he doesn't mind as part of that uh, lawn function, when they start to pick up, and, and become quite healthy, he's probably right out of the problem, and the chickens can be part of the cycle, and you've got clean eggs and, 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 and clean chicken meat when, as, you, as you put them into a productive part of the event. So, yeah, look for the indicators that the diversity health has increased in the lawn, and I think you're out. That's a great indicator. Awesome. Next one, uh, question for Jeff Lawden is, in the Food Forest Blueprint PDF, you mentioned, mentioned numbers planted initially and numbers in the end. Are you referring to numbers per hectare or acre, or is there some other meaning? What I'm talking about there is the, the percentage of um, um, material, like living material, the biomass. So okay. on, on mass, on the area... 90% of the mass initially is the support species because they can grow so well and so fast and, and they, can, they can form that, 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 that uh, pioneering process, that supporting process. As they support the, 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 the fertility increase, you're manipulating that fertility towards the productive plants which are more sophisticated because they have sophisticated products that we use and they're coming forward um, to take up the space because you're opening the space and you're diminishing this mass of support species. So at a certain stage, they're kind of 50-50 and about, that's about halfway up. And by the time you get to absolute climax and your fruit trees have, have sort of hit canopy, you've taken 90% of the mass away of the support species and you've just got some long-term old employees who really know their job and they're easy to work with and they're really skilled and they're there just working away with 90% of the really, really productive um, elements there who are really, really sophisticated, skilled workers who give you those all those lovely diversity of products coming through over a very long season. You've got different elements coming, so you've always got something to pick over the growing season. And the supporters there are very few because this system's quite sophisticated at that stage. So it's really a mass analogy. And so it leaves it open for your numbers. I don't think you can put too many support species in. I'm not sure how many, but I, I think you can... You you can overstack it and reduce your workload because what you're doing is you're just including more construction workers to build a sophisticated business at the end. 
So you've got to have a lot of construction workers initially to build the, the factory, and then at the end you've got a few really you know skilled people keeping it all running and efficient. Gotcha. And that's how you, it, you know that's how you've got to think about it. That was a question I had too, and now I, I really get it because I think that we can just take it and reverse engineer it. So if I look at your 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 food forest blueprint. Uh, what I end up with in this unit is 10 fruit, nut, or timber trees. So I could just take it per individual uh, final overstory fruit, nut, timber tree and take a zero off every number. And if you want 10 trees, you got the same number. You want 100 trees, add a zero. You want one tree, take a zero off. And it's, it's just a 10, it's a 10 base ratio, which makes a lot of sense to me now. Yeah, I mean, with this stuff, it's really interesting because there's an infinite number of variations to this, but there's a standard approach. So it, it's the ultimate sort of basic understanding because it crosses right across, you know, disciplines. It connects disciplines together and it, and it connects climates and, and the way we all have to think globally about the environment. But there's an infinite number of variations of individuality. So everybody who puts these systems together is going to put their footprint on it. They're going to put their, 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 their fingerprint. It'll be their identity. This is my style of food forest. That's your style of perennial system. Oh, wow, you, you know, your personality is different than mine. But to get people starting with that, I've had to try and develop triggers. And, and those little illustrations are just a trigger to start the process. So whoever's asking this question, what, what we've hopefully done is triggered your interest. Now, to really get a better handle on this, you should have got to go through the education process. And when we teach a permaculture design certificate course, what we do is we, we fill in all those gaps. We, we, we get that picture for you a lot clearer. We bring it into focus. It might be a bit vague now, but at least we got you looking at the picture. Now, to get that a little bit clearer, or a lot clearer, is that 72-hour-plus course that we teach. And even then, at the end of that course, I tell my students, you won't, I won't have everything clear. You've got to do a little bit of extra study after the course to fill in the slightly out of focus sections for your understanding. But that's an in, that's a really enjoyable situation. By then, you're probably terminally infected and you can't recover anyway. <laughs> you're just going to be following this for the rest of your life because it feels like something worthwhile doing. But you know that's how it is. And, and so with these DVDs, these videos. And these little illustrations uh, that we're putting out there for people, we're just trying to get a trigger. Say, look, you know, have a look at this. It might be out of focus now, but this is pretty interesting. Hopefully that trigger's got that person, you know, inquiring this question. Thank you very much. Hey. Yep. Well, Jeff, that, it's, that's a great answer, and uh, I've got a ton more stuff for you, but we're at an hour 12 now, and I know you got a bunch to do there over on the other side of the two ponds, I guess is the way to put it. Um, anyway, um, I, I just want to thank you for being with us today, and for folks that maybe haven't seen your videos yet, where can they learn more about all the work that you're doing? Okay, jefflawton.com is... Um a whole set of uh, videos that we're continuously going to be releasing for people. Um, all we need is your, your email so we can get them to you quick. Um, we're going to just keep releasing these. Have a look. It's really worthwhile. And we've got some really special events coming up very soon. 
Awesome, man. Well, I, again, thank you for being here today. Thank you for all the great work you've you've done. And you know, like I think I've said this before, but thank you for being a mentor to me, with probably without even knowing it for years now. Um, I have learned so much from the work that you've done, and I will continue to do all I can to help support it. No, oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Jeff Lawton helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.